millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect Magazine, and this week I'll be talking to the author and renegade economist Richard Thaler about the idea that made him famous, namely Nudge. It's one of those rare economics books that soon becomes something that non-economists have heard of, selling like hotcakes around the world and inspiring all kinds of governments to try all kinds of schemes affecting everything from pensions to healthy eating. Here in the UK, the Cabinet Office even created, I think flogged off, a dedicated nudge unit. And within the ivory tower, Thaler has scaled great heights too, with the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2017, awarded for, as one of the judges said, having made economics more human. So Richard, I'd, I'd like to start there really with your, with your relationship to economics. I suppose what I'd like to know is why you went into it and stuck around for so long in a profession that tried to model how people were working and doing business without noticing what people were like. Didn't it drive you mad? And why not escape to psychology, social psychology or anthropology or anywhere else? Yes. Uh, Well, that's a perfectly good question. Um, And it's not like I had some realization all of a sudden. I started asking annoying questions when I was in graduate school. And I was in a PhD program studying economics, and I did have these problems, but um, I didn't know anything about psychology. And so I I persisted, and I, I wasn't all that good at normal economics. And so I was kind of forced to create a different sort of economics that I was good at. And um, it's still economics. It's certainly not psychology. Um, I, I, I don't know that much about psychology and would never dream of calling myself a psychologist. Okay. I mean, my, my first job was in economics too, so I can relate to some of your detail about, it's a great story about having to remove a Moorish bowl of nuts to ensure all the guests still had uh, room for their main course. I mean, a sort of half interesting story in itself. But what I really liked was the fact that the guests, because they're all other economists, then uh, as well as being grateful, have a conversation about how paradoxical it is that they are grateful that you're removing a choice from them. Yes, that 
you know, that uh, il illustrates a, a rule of thumb that, uh, that we quote in the book, which is that if more than 25% of the guests at a dinner party come from the economics department, the conversation will be ruined. <laughs> I particularly like the story in there as well about a friend called Dennis. And he's a guy who wants to have a bit more fun in his life, but he's a bit of a miser. So he has to force his own hand by taking a proportion of his income and sticking it in a special bank account so that he'll be forced to spend it on eating out in fancy restaurants in Paris, I think you say. And again, I've got to ask, is Dennis an economist? No, Dennis is a social psychologist. Uh, and I wouldn't call him a miser. Uh, in fact, this, you know, this is something I refer to as mental accounting. And um, he has studied at my footsteps for many years to become a more proficient uh, mental accountant. And uh, this little trick was precisely designed to encourage him to spend more on the things he enjoyed. So, um, you know, it it's like uh, taking off some device that prevents your car from going more than 50 miles an hour. Uh, it was allowing him to speed just a bit um, um, without any guilt. Okay, so so yeah, that's maybe a better analogy. But um, you've got all these heuristics, um, uh, and others have written about them as well, availability bias, and you know, we, we're more likely to dwell on the things that lodge in our mind. We're more likely to do things that the rest of the her doing all the rest of it um and and you've um made a career now of um reporting these kind of findings uh in economics journals and people are uh, surprised and um uh and and having to rethink things as a result but do you find a difference when you talk to non-economics um uh, audiences are people saying what do you mean you're debunking something that we never believed in the first place has that been an issue ever uh, absolutely. When when I would occasionally give a talk in the psychology department, I, I remember doing that early on when I was uh, teaching at Cornell, um, and I, they were invited me to give a departmental symposium, and the audience was struggling to believe that the economist's theory of saving and consumption over the lifetime could possibly be the thing I was describing, uh, which they found to be preposterous. And the only thing that saved me was that an economist friend of mine from the economics department interceded and assured them that I was not making this up and that economists truly did believe that people would calculate how much they were going to earn over their lifetime, what they were going to make on their various investments, how long they would live, and then would compute. Um, so, you know, it, it's true that um, non-economists find what much of what we say to be either intuitive or obvious, and economists find it ridiculous. And uh, that makes for some interesting conversations. 
Um, I mean, I, I know that the profession really has changed um, in, in some ways in the in the last twenty years. No doubt, in part because of of your um, work, uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I used to work at used to ridicule the idea of a winter fuel payment, extra money for pensioners to keep them warm in 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 uh, in, in, in um, the the cold months as a needless complication to the benefit system. But nowadays it publishes stuff showing that, you know, if you call something a winter fuel payment, people spend more of it on winter fuel and so keep warmer. And if you label something child benefit, then they're more likely to spend it on their children and so on. And this kind of brings us into some of the insights that are in the, in, in the book about how, you know, the way things are set up, what we call choice architecture, um, matters, but I wanted to dig just a little bit into the political philosophy, which you um, co- co- uh, coined the sort of uh, at best half lovely phrase libertarian paternalism. For um, that is basically the idea that a nudge towards good behaviour is good, but you shouldn't force people's hands. Is that a fair summary? Yes, um, and. You know, we we coined that term knowing it would annoy people, um, especially libertarians uh, are angry uh, that we've stolen their word uh, and use it for purposes they consider to be illegitimate. But uh, the, the idea is not that we should do everything this way, but that there are a range of tools that are available that do change behavior, but don't require anyone to do anything. And those are all tools that economists would say couldn't possibly matter. For example, calling a bit of money a winter fuel allowance, what difference could that make? Money is fungible. Um, And So, you know, when we published the book, the idea was, look, here are a set of things that economists say don't work, can't possibly work, and yet they do. And, you know, I I would say one of the major differences in the new edition is we try to make clearer what the limits of that policy are, which we never thought was the solution to all problems. It was the solution to some problems and and a contribution to other problems that economists had brushed off as impossible. Okay, and so on the libertarian side of it, because this obviously gets, you know, like, so I think you say you're not mostly talking about taxes, you're more talking about just, I don't know, the way things are arranged in in a supermarket or whatever. But in terms of the libertarian side of it, are we saying it should not rely on an appeal to a future better self, that it should be a decision that as long as you stop and think about it for a second, you know you want to make now, you know, whether it's giving up smoking or whatever. It's something you want to do now. It's not something that we're being paternalistic about and then you'll appreciate it was a good idea in a year's time. Well, what we say is we want to nudge people to a to do the things they would do if they had all the facts and were had no self-control problems. So it's, it's like giving someone an alarm clock. Uh, that helps people get up in the morning. 
but they set the time that it goes off and have the ability to hit the snooze or turn it off. So uh, now one can, of course, take sterner measures and decide to uh, encourage people to do some things that they don't want to do. And um, that we, we don't necessarily uh, rule that out. We wouldn't, we wouldn't characterize it as fitting our definition of our philosophy. But uh, look, the, the effort to get people to be vaccinated um, is somewhere on the hazy borderline of this. Um, we, we think that most people, if they truly understood the scientific evidence, would choose to be vaccinated. Um, some of the people who are refusing to do so uh, beg to differ. And if we nudge them to get vaccinated, whether that constitutes paternalism or libertarian paternalism is a matter of debate, but, you know, I'm not much for these philosophical debates. <laughs> okay. So let's just try and keep it fairly practical. I mean, one thing that grabs me about it is that, like, in terms of if you're going to be a libertarian paternalist about, um, you know, our habits, like, you know, healthy eating, smoking and uh, pension saving and, and lots of things that are at the, the core of the original um, book, uh, as well as the new edition. Isn't there a case for saying, if you want to be a libertarian paternalist about the individual, you've actually got to be quite stern and strict, maybe, about the companies who are selling it, who are warping what we want, who are getting inside our mind by stoking false fears or peddling us quack diets that... Um, they know we're going to work for three months and then not work and they can sell us a new book next year. Do we need to be a bit less libertarian there with the industries? Well, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I, I'm not sure our philosophy per se has, has any specific things to say about regulation, but certainly we are in favor of setting up a set of rules that give consumers the best chance of choosing what's good for them. And so if firms are fooling people into buying their products, we're against that. One of the differences in the new edition, the new and final edition, I might emphasize, uh, this is like removing the bowl of nuts. Calling it the final edition will make sure we never are stupid enough to do this again. Um, you know, we, one of the examples of sludge is that uh, many... Um, Sorry, I think we haven't defined sludge just yet. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for that. So, you know, the nudge mantra is make it easy. And when I was working with the behavioral insight team that David Cameron set up in 2010, I would go around in every ministry and say, if you want to get people to do something, make it easy. That's a nudge. Sludge is what mucks things up. 
and it makes things difficult. One example of sludge is many services that are sold by subscription uh, make it very easy to subscribe and difficult to unsubscribe. I don't know whether that's true of the prospect. Maybe you can check. But I coined this term when I was reading the first review of my previous book called Misbehaving, which was published in a well-known London newspaper. And it has the strictest paywall that I've ever come across. There's no such thing as one or two free articles or even a glance at the first few sentences. Uh, but you are offered a one-month trial for a mere pound. And I was tempted to subscribe until I looked into the details in which I learned that to unsubscribe I would have to give 14 days notice and then call London during London business hours and not on a toll-free line. And so I immediately told my editor, no, you download the review and send it to me. So I started calling that sludge on Twitter. And uh, this may be the first scientific term that has been coined on Twitter. But uh, we now devote a chapter to it. And we think California has passed a law that says it must be possible to unsubscribe the same way you subscribe. And I think that's a quite good law. So that's sludge for the consumer. But I mean, it's it's very attractive nudge for the, for the salespeople, right? So it does depend which way around you're looking at things. And sludge you see is something that's affecting... I don't know, the, all sorts of things about the way organizations work, nudging people towards bad ways of doing things. Is that right? Well, mu much sludge is just incompetence and careless design. So, for example, at my university, uh, faculty are given a corporate credit card that we can use for purchases. And so... I had to buy one of those damn ring lights for uh, the sort of thing that we are doing these days. And I bought one and didn't like it and sent it back uh, all on my corporate credit card. And by the time the report was due, uh, there was a zero balance. And yet my admin said, look, you have to fill in this form uh, to show the receipt for the thing for which we don't owe any money. This is sludge, right? Why do they need to know what it was that I didn't spend any money on? Okay. There were lots of other things I didn't spend money on. So um, we, I, I, I am on a campaign to get rid of sludge internal and external, private sector and public sector, it just mucks things up. Let's just talk, I mean, as you say, new and final edition. Um, uh, yes. I think it's 12 or 13 years on. And uh, as you also acknowledge in the book, it's been a pretty eventful 13 years, particularly uh, in the kind of world of finance and economics. Um, 
because even before we got to uh, policy being having to be remade in an unprecedented way with COVID, we had the financial crisis and we had um, uh, austerity to pay for it. I mean, it did feel like Nudge was exactly at the right moment because a few months later, um, the, the, there was a shift, wasn't there, back towards regulation. And David Cameron, you mentioned before, a great enthusiast, was sort of um, like, uh, you know, seen by people on the left as sort of talking about let's move the chocolate oranges off the counter at the news counter and nudge them towards healthier eating like that at the same time as taking away their benefits. And, you know, it felt like the decisions of life got quite a lot harder. Um, and uh, uh, I wonder, you know, what as, you know, the, the, the nudge man, if you like, uh, you've got to say about it, is nudge good in harder times too? Well, I, yeah, I don't think that um, the tools of choice architecture and nudging um uh, are specific to any particular circumstances nor do i think that uh governments are run in a particularly coherent way um you know david cameron was just one person and um you know he had a cabinet and uh and a parliament and so forth and so on and and uh, the public, uh, you know, I think you you can you know I always say nudge for good, and I've been signing copies of the book, thousands of copies of the book, nudge for good, uh, but it's also possible to nudge for evil, and I think the world champion nudger, nudger for evil, in my opinion, is Dom Cummings. Mm. Uh, who's a genius at framing and, uh, in my opinion, has um, set back the formerly United Kingdom, uh, well, the still slightly United Kingdom, uh, with six words. Uh, the first three being take back control. Now, Never have three words been so effectively used for ill. Um, and he explicitly credits the idea of loss aversion as uh, the motivation for that phrase. Take back control means get back something that you lost. And one of the things behavioral economists stress is the notion of loss aversion. Now, one can argue what exactly it was that Britain had lost and how uh, withdrawing from the EU would get it back. And certainly after the fact, it doesn't look to me like uh, the UK has got a whole lot more control, although it does have uh, many millions of hours of bureaucrats writing laws that will have to be done. And, and then, you know, later on, uh, get Brexit done um, was brilliant. Uh, I was visiting London right before uh, the election, and it was clear that the strongest sentiment was 
just please, can we not have to talk about Brexit anymore? It's, it's the way we now feel about COVID, that we're just tired. And if somebody could run a campaign on get COVID done, and anybody thought that they had the ability to do that, they would win in a landslide. It is what we all are praying for. And so, uh, yes, um, I think nudging is a tool for all times. It's very effective, and it's used by both uh, heroes and villains. You've got the ballot paper in there, haven't you, from Hitler with the, the, the do you want Hitler to stay as chancellor? Big, big circle for yes, small circle for no. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but do you think, just in terms again of this 13 years, because it seems to me that maybe the, you know, the financial crisis wasn't great for nudging uh, in that um, it looked like you needed some pretty rigid controls on bank capitalization and that kind of thing and nudging might not be enough whereas covid actually is possibly quite good for nudging in that things like masks and take your vaccine and all the rest of it have these effects on individuals that then ricochet through the economy and society so i mean do you feel like this is a more propitious moment to have published the new and final edition than it would have been in 2013 say or 14 um, no, I don't, I don't think I agree with either of your premises. So uh, the uh, first version of Nudge was written during the financial crisis. Uh, it was published in 2008, but we, we were very much in the midst of it. And many of the things we talk about, come at some of the most wonky and driest bits, which we've tried to reduce to, the, to a minimum in this final edition, things like what we call smart disclosure, I think would have greatly helped during the financial crisis. Um, and uh, as far as COVID goes, yes, uh, nudging has played a very important role. But as I've written about recently, I think when it comes to uh, vaccinations, uh, we've reached the end of the nudging rope um, because it, nudging, I, I, I think of it as three stages. There was a first stage where there weren't enough vaccines to go around. And so people were sort of queuing up. And then there was the second stage where they all got their shots and we were trying to make it easy for the people on the fence or the procrastinators or the uncertain to get their shots. And we're now down to people who have pretty strong opinions uh, based on we're not sure. And uh, I, for one, think sterner measures are appropriate. So my university is requiring not nudging, is requiring that all students and faculty be vaccinated in order to return to campus in next month. And um, I'm actually quite happy about that. And I wouldn't sure, I'm not sure I would be ready to step into the classroom if I thought that the students weren't going to be vaccinated. So 
And I'm a big advocate for COVID passports, some kind of digital vaccine record. The U.S. is adopting possibly the least sophisticated uh, version of that in the world, meaning if you get a vaccination, you get some piece of paper that has handwriting on it and it's slightly too big to fit in a wallet. the idea that that's the technology we're using to allow people to show that they've been vaccinated is quite preposterous. And um, I wish our president were uh, taking a lead on this, and he's not. That sounds like sludge, and the examples before sounded like nudge giving way to shove in the very special um, circumstances of the pandemic. But Richard, thank you very much Uh, for joining us which has been extremely interesting Um, thanks very much to all of you for listening too and if you enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating and a review nudge the final edition is out now with penguin Um, goodbye stay safe and we'll see you next week